every patient that I care for is like taking care of my own child. My name is Candy, and I'm a nursing assistant at Lifespan. He's a handsome boy. I've been working in the PICU for 10 years. I love the miracles that we see. It's so rewarding. You know, the families that we get to help, they put their child in our hands. We have to be there to support them and take care of them, deliver health with care. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. To me, a certain image of flight attendants is never gonna go away. The ad executives did a very good job of imprinting that in our minds. And so glorified waitress, sex kitten, objectified, unfortunately still linger. I had a passenger once say to me when I said, oh, I loved that book that he was reading. And he said, you read? Just tapping it around. Dan Keating waiting to try and get to him. Stewart trying to run past him, he's got past him, he's got control of this ball as he run it through the goal, wow, talk about control. I'm William Crisp and I'm the uh, announcer for the Newport International Polo Series. <laughs> it's not that funny. You had to figure out what can we do with art, with music, with spectacle, with engagement to get people excited about coming downtown. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. It's the first full week of summer, and Rhode Islanders, like the rest of the country, are on the move. For many, the events will be closer to home this year. And in the ocean state with hundreds of miles of coastline, diverse communities, and soaring cultural events, it has a lot to offer. Our stories tonight are all about adventure and taking risk. First up, acclaimed author, Rhode Island native Anne Hood. Before she was a writer, she was a flight attendant. Hood has taken to the skies with a new memoir, which begins at a time when the objectified stewardesses of the past were fighting for equal rights during the women's liberation movement. I thought, I need adventures to be a good writer. Where am I gonna get adventures? I grew up in West Warwick. I led a pretty sheltered life. I went to URI. I didn't really see the world at all, and I thought, I'll be a flight attendant and I'll have experiences. So please help me welcome Anne Hood, author of Fly Girl. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Long before she was an acclaimed New York Times bestselling author, Anne Hood was a flight attendant. It was the late 1970s when women's liberation was a fledgling movement, and commercials to lure businessmen into becoming frequent flyers looked like this. Fly me. Unbelievable, right? TWA infamously had paper uniforms for a while that used to rip as you wore them and they'd have to duct tape themselves into their uniforms. Branagh famously had something called the airstrip where they changed their clothes four times on the flight in the aisles. Kept, just kept taking things off till they landed in their hot pants. So listen, we get why this, you know, we were objectified and why there was the sex kit and idea. How did you feel about that, having to always worry about your weight, your makeup, how you looked, was so much yeah. emphasis on that, and that had to go against the grain a bit. Well, you know, I think if you wanted the job, 
you knew you were entering like a corporate culture. You know, I, I remember when men who went to work for IBM had to wear particular ties. Like, you know, I think that every corporation has kind of an image they want. So you're signing up for it. So it's not like you're surprised or oppressed. And women were still accepting of it. Absolutely. Hood says she was proud to wear her Ralph Lauren uniform. She flew for eight years, most of them with TWA, Transworld Airlines. During her tenure, flight attendants unionized, fought for equal pay, and ultimately ended the weight, marriage, and pregnancy restrictions. But it wasn't easy. Why did you decide to become a flight attendant? I had stars in my eyes from the time I was a little girl. And I knew I wanted to be a writer, too. So it would seem like this would be the perfect book for you to write. What took so long? You know, we live our lives, and history happens around us, and culture shifts. But we're not even that aware of it. You know, we just keep living, putting one foot in front of the other. I realized that I had really covered a big change in culture, in history, and in aviation. You know, I started in 1978, where many women still had one foot in the past. To me, a certain image of flight attendants is never going to go away. The ad executives did a very good job of imprinting that in our minds. And so glorified waitress, sex kitten, objectified, unfortunately still linger. I had a passenger once say to me when I said, oh, I loved that book that he was reading. And he said, you read? But I never thought it reflected on me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I knew I was smart. I knew I was getting the life I wanted. And I was learning so much, you know, just learning how to talk to people. You must be unflappable. I pretty much am. <laughs> you know, when, um, when passengers say and do things that are so weird, you have to figure out how to take care of it on the spot or, you know, how to diffuse anger because the flight attendant is the one who gets blamed for bad food, weather, any flight delays, mechanical problems, lost luggage. You know, you come on, the passengers come on ready to blame the flight attendant and you have to be able to make them feel okay. But what I suspected and what turned out to be true that, is that it was the most empowering job a young woman could have. You made all the decisions on that plane. You didn't have a boss, really. You went all over the world and often had to venture out by yourself if the crew didn't want to go out or didn't want to go out with you. You learned how to handle emergencies, to, t to think on your feet. You learned poise. You were confident. You put on that uniform and you became a confident woman. Why did you not want to become a pilot and have that adventure? I think I'm too much of a coward. I do, I do not like the idea of landing a big plane like that. I'm not a risk taker. Hmm. I would say you took a lot of risks <laughs> doing that when you did it. I don't know. Hood writes about dealing with some eccentric passengers, like the time she found a man sitting on the plane without his pants. Sir, where are your pants? And he said, up there. And I said, um, well, you have to have pants on. He said, I can't. Why can't you wear your pants? Well, I have a job interview and they'll wrinkle. <laughs> and so I felt for him and I got him a blanket and he sat covered the whole time. But that's what I mean about thinking on your feet. You never knew what was gonna happen when you got on that plane. I always said, life unfolds on airplanes. You're in that like tin can with 300 people on a 747 or our small planes had about 100 and you're there for hours and things happen. People go into labor, people fall in love, people break up. People die? People die, yeah. Little did Hood know she would one day write about the sudden death of her five-year-old daughter, Grace, taken by a fatal form of the strep virus. One of a, a writer's jobs is to make sense out of the chaos that's life. You know, life is messy, um, life is hard, 
And a writer has to have the ability to step back and write about that truthfully and bravely, really. And when we lost Grace, that was in 2002, um, I couldn't read or write for over a year. I mean, I was completely destroyed. And everyone kept saying to me gently and nicely, write about it. I thought, I can't because I can't make sense out of something senseless. And then one day I realized, wait, I've got to write about this honestly. I'll write it as a novel. So I, you know, I changed everything, but I got to the emotion that it was hard to put out when I'm telling my real story. And I wrote The Knitting Circle. And that kind of freed me to write the real story. And the real story, like her novel The Knitting Circle, became a bestseller. Her memoir, Comfort, A Journey Through Grief, was the book Hood says she wished had been available for her. Over time, I had been making as much sense as one can. And that if I, if I published that book, there would be countless people who would benefit from it. And that indeed is what happened. I get letters every week when someone finds comfort and reads it. Despite logging hundreds of thousands of miles as a flight attendant, the author still hasn't fallen out of love with flying, especially when it's with her family. Her husband is chef and writer Michael Ruhlman. There's also grown son Sam and teenage daughter Annabelle. She says they tease her that sometimes she acts like she's still on duty. I'm either the most fun person to fly with or the worst because I'm so... It, put your tray table up, you know, to my family. It's time to put your... Turn that off. You're not supposed to have that on. Put that under the seat in front of you, you know. Old habits die hard. Oh, my gosh. And I check it out, and I'm always aware if the flight attendants are doing a good job. Do you confess to being a flight attendant to I them? I do. You often get, like, a free bottle of wine or something if you tell them. <laughs> so it's good. I always do. Why did you name it Fly Girl? Because it has a double meaning. TWA called them hostesses, not stewardesses. So there was a lot of different names for them, but they were all Fly Girls. They were all, that was the general name. But I liked the idea of fly girl, like soar, like take off, it, start your life. So fly girl, yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So when you think about it now, would you do it all over again? 100%, I wouldn't even think about it. I even sometimes have a fantasy of, I'm gonna apply again. I could do it for a couple more years. Because as she writes, never has the magic of flying been more obvious to me than on a long ago December flight right before Christmas of 1985. The captain of the 747 I was working from Rome invited me to sit in the cockpit for landing. And as we descended, snow started to fall, small bright flakes like fairy dust. Then Manhattan came into sight. The air grew tense, electric with voices and the crackles of the radio. The ground seemed to lift up to greet us, the lights of the runway and the jet brighter until the wheels hit the ground it's something, isn't it, the captain said softly. I could only nod. Few times in my life have I experienced something that felt that majestic, that, that reminded me that I, that all of us on this world, are alive. When I understood, or understood as much as we can, how sky and earth and snow and light and, and man, man coexist. Co Thank you.
Up next, we take you to a Quidneck Island where we hear that one Englishman is flying the flag for a relatively obscure sport. Senior producer Justin Kenny has spent the last few weekends in the commentator's booth at the Newport International Polo Grounds to capture one man's mission through passion and sarcasm to elevate the equestrian competition to new heights. Just tapping it around. Dan Keating waiting to try and get to him. Stewart trying to run past him. He's got past him. He's got control of this ball as he run it through the goal. Wow. Talk about control. I'm William Crisp and I'm the uh, announcer for the Newport International Polo Series. <laughs> it's not that funny. Backhand Oski. Always a miss, a rare miss from Oski. Chris couldn't get it. Rory Tory picks it up. Stewart on the grey pony, goes to cover him. Polo is the most amazing sport that requires uh, horses. Uh, you can play indoors, so an arena polo, which is three aside, or outdoors, which is four aside. Uh, and each person rides a horse and you try and hit a little white ball with a bamboo stick that's like 50 inches long with a wooden head. And the ball is made of a hard plastic, it's about three and a half inches in diameter. So not the biggest thing to hit when you're galloping along on a horse. And then the opposition are allowed to bump into you on their horses and they're allowed to hook your stick too. So it's quite uh, active. And you've got to get your horse to the ball. And once you get there, you've got to hit it. Chris tries to overcut it, runs over the top of the ball. Minnie trying to get to it. She's pushing hard. Put your stick down, Minnie. There we go. Unfortunately, comes off Bullis. Stop the appealing. Get the hitting going on. Roger Soto misses the backhand. Chris Ragomeni. Are you kidding me? He's got a tough pony he's on. Oh, Lucio gets in the way. It's there. Marguerite. Oh, she was looking at the goal, not at the ball, and missed the ball. I was lucky enough to be playing in England, and somebody said to me, uh, hey, William, you want to go to Newport? They've asked uh, for a team from England. Well, yeah, sure. So I ended up captaining or bringing the team from England in the very first year. So that was 1991, 1992. And uh, I fell in love with Newport, uh, as you can imagine. It's, it's, I'm still in love with Newport. I still call it my hometown. I fell in love with one of the local ladies and uh, basically never left. Sends a lovely shot towards the goal. It's left there for someone. Dan Keating going to try and clear it. He doesn't. Rory Tory does. I think it's got a bad rap, the name Polo. I think a lot of people, Polo is like this, you know, the Kings play it or something. It's got a posh rap. But you come to Newport, it's not posh at all. It's, it's really down to earth. The people who are playing, I mean, one of our players is a waiter. You know, we've got all sorts. One of the, you know, is a general contractor. Just stick down, hook it. There we go, pressure. Chris Ragameni, nice backhand. Anybody onto that? Stuart Campbell. Minnie's got the right. Minnie's got it. And Minnie's going to unload this ball if she can. So we have a lot of women play polo, a lot of ladies. Uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had the ladies versus the men, and the, the ladies won. You're on a half-ton horse. And so the difference in weight between a male and a female when they're on a half-ton horse is negligible because it's the half-ton horse. Then if you can ride a horse, you, you've got the game down. Sure, there's a little bit of strength issue in hitting the ball, but as long as you've got timing and you can, you know, you, they, they, they play just as hard as the men. And there's some really good women players out there in the world. I mean, it's really good. I mean, they are better than a lot of the men. Runs over the top. There goes the... 7.30 bell, ending the first chucker. The teams will go off and change their ponies, if you can imagine that each pony runs probably one to two miles every chucker. They're very fit, they're very well looked after. 
So they'll go off for a break and then a pony is well capable of doing a second chaka. Each player has a minimum of uh, three horses and many of them will have six. I'm really conscious of trying to bring the spectators into the game. Uh, it's hard because it's polo, so a lot of people don't know the rules. And, you know, like in polo, they change ends after every goal, not after each quarter or half-time. So, you know, people will be watching and go, whoa, they were going that way. And that, what's going on here? So I try really hard to, to make polo as simple as possible for people to understand the game and really be able to get into it. And so they they're get into the supporting of a team and... So that's my real aim, is to get enjoyment to, to, the, uh, to, the, to the fans that come. Not even a grass stain to wash off. Okay, and where are you going? We'll hope for better falls later on. They're always interesting. Yeah, Rory, you had to go across the line about four times there. I know you don't think you did, but you did. And guess what? The whistle goes, the clock will stop, and we'll hang around for another ten minutes while they make up their mind what they're going to do. We're going to need headlights on the cars if we don't get this game over with soon. Oh, I was really looking forward to this last checker. I thought it was going to go absolutely flat out. Just shows that I know absolutely nothing. Did somebody mention a certain examination? Really. Another whistle. I have no idea what this time. I think people enjoy my type of commentating. Um, I think I'm quite dry. I'm probably Monty Python-esque sort of weird humour, which amazingly, thank you, Monty Python, people get. And uh, so, yeah, I enjoy my weirdness. My mother called me Thumper when I was younger after the uh, rabbit in Bambi. Uh, where she says, Thumper, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And I still probably should be called Thumper because I still say what I think. He's impeded. Rory Torrey's trying to turn it. Leo does well to stop him. Can Campbell get on this ball? It's under there. Unlucky for him, it gets popped out. Minnie tries to turn it the other way. And in comes Sam Clements and the whistle goes. This is when the F-bomb goes. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. He's lost control of it again. Your commentating is a bit biting towards some of the players. Do you ever get any reactions to that? What do you, what do you mean a bit biting? I, I only say what I see. It might needle the players a little bit, or even the umpire a little bit. But the spectators see what I'm saying. And they enjoy the little giggle, laugh, maybe. Freeman, Cole's turning it. Runs over the top. There goes the 7.30 bell, ending the first chucker. You know, Polo came to Newport in 1876. So it's almost three years to its 150th anniversary. So I think my, my, I think my goal is to stay alive that long before... Maybe somebody will take me out. I'm not going to be rude to Putin or anything because I don't want no assassins coming. So as long as nobody takes me out before then, I'm going to go on for another three years, at least. I mean, I enjoy it, so while I can still see, I'll, I'll carry on doing it. Right, sweaty hands, lappy time, gentlemen. And ladies and gentlemen, you want to get sweated on by a smelly polo player, now's your opportunity. And I can't believe how many of you line up for this torture. 
but here comes Dan Keating to show his appreciation for your support and thank you so much everybody for coming. Sorry it was a slow game. Little known fact, the first ever polo game in America was played right here in Newport. Finally tonight, Waterfire is back for a full season since the start of COVID. It has been called the crown jewel of the Providence Renaissance. We visited with the man who started the fire. It comes together with a wonderful sort of grace in the middle of downtown. Waterfire has blazed a trail through the heart of Providence for close to three decades. Branded the soul of the city, it is the urban sculpture installation by Barnaby Evans, who spent his childhood in California with a family that loved the great outdoors. I have two younger sisters, and my mom and dad, all en we enjoyed hiking and going through the desert. I've heard you almost wax poetic about camping with your family yeah. and, and campfires. Right. What was it well, about that that enchanted you? We would camp in the high desert, and there's no firewood, so you'd sort of spend all day looking for little pieces and we would make a small campfire and I remember sitting and there when you're in the desert you see no lights on the horizon line and we'd slowly run out of wood and the fire would get um, darker and darker and then you'd suddenly become aware of this whole vault of the stars overhead. We would talk and uh, really spend a lot of time with each other, very deep conversations. Uh, it really moved me. It was those deep conversations with family gathered around the campfire that Evans said would later spark the thought of water fire. The flickering light and the changing light and being able to have a conversation with people in that light, it gives you, I think, a freedom to explore more. Exploring with his father fired a passion for both science and art. Evans' dad was a biophysicist, an amateur photographer, who once worked with a famed artist of the outdoors. He had actually uh, was a uh, mule driver for um, Ansel Adams, who used to have mules that carried his equipment up into Yosemite. So at uh, one summer, he had a chance to be helping to pack uh, Ansel Adams. Ansel Adams' photography influenced Evans to take up the camera. He also studied architectural history and environmental biology at Brown University. Evans arrived to a very different Providence as a student in 1971. You could play golf in downtown Providence because nobody was there. Restaurants were not open. It was a pretty tough town. Beneath the tough veneer, though, Evans discovered a rich arts community, history, and diversity. After graduation, he started working in architectural preservation, urban photography, and sculpture. Eventually, the Providence Renaissance began. Three rivers downtown were uncovered and moved. Do you remember the moment where you walking along the water, the rivers in Providence? Or how did this all come together? Well, it, you had to figure out how could you prime the pump? What was going to get someone to go look at a river at night in a city that people considered dangerous and, and there was nothing to do? So we'd spent boldly, and I think smartly, a lot of money to uncover the river, but we didn't figure out how to animate it. How do you make it alive? What makes people go out of their way to come here? So that was my first assignment to myself is, wow, we've got this park, nobody's here. What can we do with art, with music, with spectacle, with engagement to get people excited about coming downtown? Downtown Providence's first night celebration on New Year's Eve 1994 marked the Waterbound Bonfire's debut. 
It was meant to be a one-time experience, but its popularity spread. Today, 42 braziers string through downtown. Evans says a sense of community is Waterfire's legacy. So one of the intentions of Waterfire is to create a place where the same conversations I remembered happening in a campfire with my small family could happen with lots of families all over Providence. And even beyond that, there's an effect that sociologists call triangulation, where you can get strangers to talk to each other. So this is uh, a, an exhibition near and dear to your heart because it's about the environment. It is about the environment. and it's Evans is now trying to steer the conversation to conservation with this recent exhibition at the Waterfire Arts Center. One of the intentions of this exhibition is all of our coastal cities have a challenge ahead of us. And we need to come together to make the sort of hard choices of how to save the world, it's not understating it, to um, reduce our carbon footprint, to figure out how we can deal with sea level rise. You know, artists and scientists both use vision. Despite his prominence as a voice for ecology and art, and, uh, Evans professes to be a behind-the-scenes person. I'm actually a bit of an introvert, and I'm very shy, and I don't like doing interviews or <laughs> being out on the spotlight. A shy guy that got all these people to come to the party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a funny situation. I want Providence to continue to be a successful city. I've grown deeply in love with the city. And you can get the full summer schedule of Waterfire at GoProvidence.com. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online and see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you and good night.